Excited to be back for season two of Midrash NYC. I'm Ben Grace, podcast producer. Today's conversation is with author and activist Brian McLaren, known for his books A New Kind of Christianity and We Make the Road by Walking. Before that, we'd love to invite you to FCQ 16, three unique events talking about faith, culture, and questions. Kicking off this series is singer-songwriter David Bazan with his signature storytelling sharpened at numerous house shows across the country to the Bell House in Brooklyn, Thursday, September 22nd. Grab your tickets now at ForefrontNYC.com FCQ. So, on to today's podcast with Brian McLaren. Hi, Brian. Hey, good to be with you guys. Thanks so much for being with us. Um, we're excited because you're one of the, when we first started our church uh, in 2012, the first book we gave to everyone in our church was New Kind of Christianity. That was the first oh, one. Yep. Yeah. So, so. Uh, and we've I, told many more to read it since. Yeah, we have. Yeah. So I think, uh, I think you have left an indelible mark on our people. So thank you for that. Well, that's really good to know. Nice to be in this together, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but one thing that that came from that book, and, and one thing that you've talked a lot about, uh, uh, is this idea of a just and generous expression of the Christian faith. And and I know there's a lot that goes into the just and generous expression of the Christian faith. Uh, but would you mind talking uh, to us about how uh, that idea, or that thought, or that big idea came about? Sure. Okay. Well, maybe I could do it uh, in a in a slightly dangerous way, but a way that I think will communicate. Um, I think all of us have seen those unbelievably horrible pictures on television of uh, members of ISIS cutting off the heads of uh, other people. Sometimes it's most often it's Muslims, but they've cut off the heads of a lot of Christians, and I'm sure others too. And. Uh, and of course, they do this while saying praises uh, to God. And, and this idea that there's a God who loves some people and is very happy for them to kill other people, it, you know, it goes way, way back. And frankly, if we're honest, we can find that kind of sentiment in the Bible, too. You know, there's uh, in, at the end of one of the Psalms, there's this horrible image uh, you know, that blessed are the people who dash our enemies' babies against a, a rock. In other words, you know, this infanticide is praised as a great thing as long as it's our enemies and, uh, and that God blesses that kind of violence. Um, uh, and, and what has happened, I think, is that we've always condemned that kind of violence when it's them doing it, right? But we haven't had such a strong critique of that kind of violence when it's us doing it in the name of our God. Right. And I, I'm embarrassed to say that, but it, it, it's true, uh, wh- whoever the group is. You know, Protestants hated it when Catholics uh, did terrible things to them, but it wasn't so bad when when Protestants did bad things to Catholics. And, or, or maybe it it's, wasn't even that it wasn't so bad, it's that Protestants didn't even realize what they were doing when it was them doing it. Well, all of that, uh, you know, com- the, the, the hens come ho- home to roost, so to speak, because now we're starting to have to ask the question, um, do we think God has any them? <laughs> In other words, is God on the side of some group of us, and, and is there any group that God doesn't love? 
And, and when we start to, to acknowledge that, that God is not a tribal God, but God's the God of all the universe, God's the God of all creation, God's the God who loves all people. If we really let that sink in, it has a profound effect uh, on our understanding of God and then on our understanding of Christian faith and our understanding of what it means to be good human beings in this world. That, that's really at the heart of this shift, I think. And, uh, so that, that, that's where that comes from. And the word just, of course, suggests that God cares about what's fair and right for everybody uh, and uh, generous that God has a heart of goodness and we should have a heart of goodness and kindness toward everybody. Yeah, that's incredibly good stuff. I, I know that there are plenty of people out there that if it was up to them would see, uh, you know, two to three percent of our world's population go to a heaven and everybody else burn for eternity, which never quite made sense. So the idea of a, of a God who is generous, who, who loves uh, God's children uh, is incredibly important. Um, how do you see that playing out? You know, you know, I practically, how does that play out? I've heard something called the four P's. Is that something that uh, that you could speak on, or, or what does this look like for for churches? Yeah. Well, l- let me tell you where it really started to affect me. I, I was brought up as a very conservative evangelical or fundamentalist, uh, and when I was a pastor, I was a pastor of a kind of mainstream uh, evangelical church for many years, and um, uh, and. I, I actually had to preach the, the Bible, you know, quite a bit. And, and so I was spending more time in scripture because I would have sermons on Sunday and Bible studies a couple times during the week. And the more I actually read the Bible, the more I had to come to terms with, uh, with the teaching of Jesus and especially this teaching of the kingdom of God. In fact, if we have time, I'll just tell you a, a quick story about this. Please. There was a, there was a, a writer whose name I won't mention because he's actually not a fan of my books at all, but uh, <laughs> uh, but he, he was a writer whose books helped me a lot. And he was going to be in the Washington, D.C. area where I live. So I, I got up my courage, and I, of course, I hadn't written anything, never thought I would write anything at that point. But I uh, contacted his secretary and managed to uh, get lunch with him at this uh, Chinese restaurant uh, where we were going to meet. And I was kind of nervous because back then I didn't realize that authors are just normal people. So, you know, uh, but I, I have lunch uh, with this guy and we're talking and, and uh, he's a respected evangelical leader. And he makes this statement. He says, well, you know, Brian, most evangelicals don't have the foggiest notion of what the gospel really is. And I felt a little bit offended. And so I remember I was eating hot and sour soup. I just kept looking down in my soup, you know, it felt like a, an auction. If I looked up, I bought something. So I just kept eat, slurping my soup. And he says, so for example, Brian, how would you define the gospel? So I gave my best answers. I talked about justification by grace through faith, the atoning work of Christ. He says, well, that's exactly what most evangelicals would say. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, no, I'm having lunch with a heretic. <laughs> uh, and so I said, well, how would you define the gospel? And he says, well, for Jesus, the gospel was the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, he says, shouldn't we let Jesus define the gospel? <laughs> and, you know, you just hate it when people bring Jesus in. So, but I remember thinking to myself, I'm a pastor, I'm whatever, you know, 44 years old, and I had no idea what that phrase kingdom of God means. And, and, uh, so the more I preached, the more I paid attention to that in the Bible, I realized that 
My understanding of the gospel is basically an evacuation plan, how to get my soul off of earth, not into hell and up into heaven. Whereas Jesus' gospel of the kingdom of God was a transformation plan, a penetration plan, an incarnation plan. So we pray in the Lord's Prayer, may your kingdom come, not may we go up to heaven, but may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's this downward movement. That to me is the key to everything, because when we understand that this is the movement of the gospel, God coming toward us, not evacuating us and abandoning the earth. Well, when we realize that, that that's what had such a profound effect on me. I wrote a book called Secret Message of Jesus to explore mm -hmm. that. And then I wrote a book called Everything Must Change. And I said, if that's the gospel, what where should we expect the kingdom of God to be at work in, in the world? And that's where I talk about those uh, the pe people, planet, poverty, peace. Uh, those are f the four places I think we should especially expect to see the kingdom of God working through us to make a transformative difference in the world. You know, you said something really, really interesting when, when, um, when you started to answer this question. You said, when I came to terms, when I came to terms with Jesus or when I came to terms with the kingdom of God, uh, you know, talk about that. What was it like to come to terms with that? And what was it like for your church to come to terms with that? Well, I, I have to say, I mean, I'm, I'm not proud of this, uh, but it was embarrassing. Like, I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, why, I, you know, sitting at that Chinese restaurant, I'm just thinking, I may have no idea what the kingdom of God means, what that phrase means, you know, and it's so central to Jesus' teaching. Uh, and so you, you, you then go through this process where you realize you've defined all these words in a certain way. The word salvation means, uh, you know, how to go to heaven when you die, how to say the sinner's prayer, how to, you know, whatever. Uh, and those things had helped me and they'd been an essential part of my spiritual growth. You know? <laughs> but, but then I, it forced me as I was preaching and said, well, what does the word salvation mean in the Bible? And, you know, it's a, you, you realize the word salvation gets its meaning in the Bible from the story of the Exodus, which is not about God taking people out of earth and up to heaven. It's about God taking people out of slavery and into freedom. Absolutely. So realize, oh, so that word salvation has a lot to do with the word freedom or liberation. And, and one by one, you know, all of these words uh, the, for the, a, a big word, you know, for me as an evangelical was the word righteousness. And, and I think I defined righteousness as a kind of moral rectitude or, or, uh, you know, moral technical perfection or something. Then you realize, no, in, in scripture and, and in Hebrew, uh, the word righteousness means justice. And, and, uh, uh, and so you think, oh, justice, this means the right use of power. God, when, when we pray, when we seek God's kingdom and God's justice or God's righteousness, we're saying we wish that power were exercised on earth the way God would want power to be exercised. Well, man, that's a whole new ballgame. You know? that, yeah, you're, get, you're getting an amen over here from us. You're, we're we're uh, yeah, an amen in the congregation on this one. Brian, we just went through the Sermon on the Mount in Epiphany in our church, oh. and um, that is exactly kind of the, the evolution of thinking that I started to find from going through that it all started with this kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven idea and what that really means because you can't read the Sermon on the Mount unless you actually, like when you actually understand that concept, it completely changes the whole thing. Um, and then you're exactly right. That that idea of righteousness has, has totally 
shifted my thinking. And, and as we sit here talking about justice, that's that's exactly one of the things I've been thinking about lately, too, is that you can't um, you can't look at God. You can't look at Jesus without looking at how much they how much they stand for the people who are oppressed um, yes. and how much they how much God is intimately he intimately suffers with those who suffer because of oppression and how much justice for Jesus even looks like um, raising up the oppressed and I don't know I just all of that is because of understanding the kingdom of God so it, it is so transformative and of course you know if if the kingdom of God is at hand if that is the gospel and at hand I think means within reach it's available now uh oh my goodness that is so it 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 really does change everything which is why when i wrote a book about that Mm -hmm. that it was called everything must change uh you know you you realize what an impact this has so uh and and it and i've seen this at work in you know a little tribal village in africa and i've seen it at work um you know among highly educated and affluent people in the United States and, and everywhere in between. It really is transformative. So let me ask you, if, if, because it is transformative, I know it's transformed our church, uh, but if you are going to go through this transformation and if you're going to look differently at the kingdom of heaven, uh, how, how do we read scripture in, in light of this new lens, I guess? Uh, what does that look like? Well, uh, it, it's it's a... It's a terrifying thing to a whole group of people because they have been saying the word Bible, 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 you know. Uh, I grew up in a tradition where we had Bible churches and we went to Bible camp and we had Bible club and we, you know, <laughs> uh, everything was Bible. Here's the irony. We actually knew very little of the Bible. What we knew how to do was extract verses from the Bible, take them out of context, put them into a certain outline. And uh, and I remember hearing a preacher once when I was young say, we have white pages and yellow pages in the Bible. <laughs> the yellow pages are the ones that are dirty because we turn to them all the time. But there are a whole lot of white pages we never look at. You know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> never touch. Well, so one of the things it makes us do is it makes us stop extracting verses out of context and sticking them into a kind of foreign outline. And it makes us pay attention to the unfolding story or narrative of the Bible itself. I'm again, I'm really not proud of this, but I was a pretty serious Bible student. And I was I, I think I was well into my 30s before I even had a sense of what the overarching biblical narrative was. I was well into my 40s before I, you know, really took took seriously uh, this idea that the Jesus message of the kingdom of God is at the center of what it, uh, of the whole biblical story. Anyhow, it, it, so paying attention to that unfolding biblical story really, uh, really makes a difference. So a way I, I've written about this is to say that for a lot of us, and there are all kinds of historical reasons for this, we, we respected the Bible so much that we treated it like a constitution. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the Bible isn't a constitution. The Bible is something much better. It's a library. And, and a library works very differently than a constitution. And we've got to rediscover the Bible as this rich library full of incredible treasures, but not to be read the way you know, lawyers read uh, a constitution. Yeah, I, I agreed. Let me ask you then, personally speaking, as you went through this journey on your own, 
give us an example of what that looked like for you. What story okay. sort, of, sort of pops or came out or, or changed? Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, so I, I, I mean, we could, you could just about pick anything at random. <laughs> right. but let, let, me, let me give you an interesting story. So um, the, the book of Genesis, you know, is really important in uh, the, the kind of fundamentalist theology I grew up in because it sets up a problem and – uh, a, a bunch of failed solutions. The problem is this thing called the fall and original sin, and then there's all these attempted solutions at, at it. But when you go back and you just read the the Bible, the, the book of Genesis as an unfolding story, you notice like a huge part of the book of Genesis is taken up with the story of this guy named uh, Jacob. <laughs> and and so uh, why is Jacob so important? Um, well. Uh, of course, if you can extract certain verses, like there's a verse in Romans you can extract that talks about how Jacob, God loved Jacob, but hated his brother Esau. Well, if that's the only verse you extract in that story of Jacob, it feeds right into that idea that God loves some people and hates other people, right? And, and I don't know about you guys, but I've heard preachers say that. I've seen that in print. I've heard it preached, you know. But if you go back and read that story, it is such a fascinating story. It's a classic coming-of-age story. Jacob is an arrogant young man. He goes out into the world, leaves home, and what happens in a coming-of-age story? The young man is tested, and he meets a bunch of people. He meets his uncle Laban, mm -hmm. who's even more tricky than he is, you know. And and he goes through a series of experiences where he isn't the winner anymore. He actually is the loser. And uh, I, I'm not trying to sound too political here, but instead of being the deal maker, he's the one who gets had in a couple of bad deals. Sure. And uh, uh, and yet he uh, eventually is humbled, and he comes to meet his brother who he ripped off so much in his younger years and there's this great little phrase in that in that story he uh, he, he he's going to meet Jacob he or he's going to meet Esau his brother he stays up all night wrestling with God and and of course if you don't put it in context you don't realize that that wrestling with God or the angel of the Lord has something to do with him wrestling with his brother who he's going to mm -hmm. meet the next day and he meets his brother and he, he tries to buy his brother off with a bunch of gifts, you know, and his brother says, what, you know, why, why are you giving me all these things? And he says to, to, you know, appease you. And Esau says, you know, you're my brother. You know, I don't need any of this. And, and he embraces him and kisses him. And, you know, there's this big reunion. And then Jacob says, um, in your face, I see the face of God because you've received me with such grace. So here's the irony. The person that was supposedly rejected by God is the one who ends up manifesting the grace and the face of God, right? Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, it boy. turns the story inside out. And then just to add insult to injury, uh, 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 speaking uh, uh, ironically, you come to the New Testament and you read the story of the prodigal son. And you realize that what Jesus has done in the story of prodigal son is he's had the father act just like Esau, the rejected brother. He runs out and kisses the son, doesn't need to be bought off, welcomes the son back. I mean, it's just you start to notice things you never would have noticed if all you were doing is treating the Bible uh, like a constitution. And I can say it's 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 way, 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 way better. <laughs> That's, I started to think about the prodigal son as you were as you were talking about that, especially because um 
I heard Nadia Boltz Weber speak about that story and specifically ending with the idea that that the son is brought into community and like throughout scripture you see Jesus the healing fully happens when people are brought into community. Yes. Um which I think is this really beautiful part of that story that we we don't pay much attention to. Um, yes. But I, I've been sitting in Genesis too, and uh, and yes. looking at a lot of this, and looking at how much God is in this progressive relationship with us, where yes. He meets people when they're egotistical and and insecure and and full of shame and sin, and um, waits for them to be the people that He needs them to be, or takes them along one step at a time to become the people He needs them to be. And so I just was thinking about that, even in terms of you saying you were in your 30s and your 40s as you started to realize some of this stuff, and how how like even your own story right there mirrors some of the stories that we see in this library. Um, yes. of how we progress and we evolve with God in relationship with Him as we walk through life, and I don't know. Exactly. There's just something really beautiful about all that. So there really is. There really is, Jen. And you th- you can think of it both, you know, of us as individuals going through changes, but you can also think of it of us as communities, as yeah. civilizations, or as of the whole human species. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're we're on a journey, and we take three steps forward and sometimes four steps back, you know, but yep. but God never gives up on us and keeps calling us forward. Uh, it's so good, too. I love the fact that in the Jacob story, you know, he, he fights the angel, he's fighting his brother, um, and uh, and he sleeps on a rock, and he gets up, and he goes, surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I think way too often... Uh, you know, I find myself saying, man, surely God was in that. And I just had no clue. And it's nice to wake up to it. Mm. So, yeah. On that note, then, I believe you have a, you have a new book coming out, right? (laughs) That's right. Yeah. I've I've been working uh, harder than I've worked on any other book uh, over the last uh, two years. And it it will come out in September. It's called The Great Spiritual Migration. Yeah. And I I love that title, by the way, because I think what you're trying to do, and, and I'll let you explain a little bit of this, but you're, you're trying to help people understand there is a new way uh, to look at this journey, to look at this arc, um, to, to see some of the beauty that you've seen. Uh, and, and there's new ways for, for churches, for communities, for Christians to express this. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, you know, the book, I, I've written the book as a Christian, primarily for Christians, but I, I'm involved in a lot of interfaith, multi-faith uh, conversations. And the fact is, all religions are, are at a real crossroads right now. Uh, people are leaving a religion of all forms, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity. People are, are leaving religion in record numbers. You could say they're migrating out of religion. <laughs> um, and often it's into just secularism or consumerism. Sometimes it's into uh, kind of spirituality without religion. But the other th- interesting thing that's happening is within each religion, there's the, there are these deep migrations going on as well. In other words, people are on the move. Um, some people are, you know, digging in their heels and all the rest, but, but uh, most of us really are on the move. And uh, so what I wanted to do in the book is I wanted to talk about three migrations that I see going on. Um, one of them is uh, uh, I call a, a spiritual migration. One of them is a theological migration. And one of them is a missional or, or practical uh, migration. And so that's, that's how the book is shaped. And, uh, and I'm trying to give a sense, I think, to people. That's, I, I hope it will put into words something people already see happening. And then will allow us to stop 
minimizing it and stop apologizing for it and say, no, actually, uh, we're being, you know, called by the spirit to move forward in these ways. Well, see, now you have to give us a little sneak preview about what each of those migrations look like. (laughs) Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, the spiritual migration, here's the way I I try to set it up in the book. This, I think, is going to be so scary for some people. But at the same time, I bet a whole lot of people say, you know what? I already have been feeling that. And that is Christian, Christian faith has defined itself for 14, 1500 years as a system of belief. Um, and I actually think we have to rediscover, and we're in a migration to understanding Christian faith as a way of life. Uh, that, you know, you could say it this way if you have the right beliefs, you're in, and everything else is details. Um, but, but I think what we're saying is actually way of life is what Jesus was really about. And, and we can get so caught up in the system of beliefs, fi- uh, fine tuning all of our beliefs in the perfect, you know, system. Uh, that we actually not only miss the way of life, we actually do the very opposite <laughs> of the way of life that Jesus uh, embodied and taught. So that's the first one. And then the second one, and, and by the way, this is not news to anybody, but it sure would be news if we put it into practice. At the core of the way of life taught by Jesus and by Paul and by John and all the rest, it, it's love. It, it, it's a way of life that love is really the core. And I ask myself, what would happen if for the next 500 years we were as committed to becoming people of love as we have been to perfecting the perfect system of beliefs for the last 500 years? So that's the first one. Um, the second one we've really already talked about, and it's a theological migration, moving toward an understanding of God as nonviolent, of just and generous, as opposed to tribal and uh, a God who has favorites and, uh, you know, uh, chooses some to the exclusion of others. I, uh, uh, a lot more we could say about that. But, but really, what could be more profound than our understanding of God? And, and then third is uh, a, a migration in, in relation to our, the church and our mission. A, a way, the way I say it in the book is that we presented ourselves as an organized religion. I think we need to come to see ourselves as an organizing religion, meaning that we're constantly organizing people for, for, to do the work of God in the world, organizing people to be part of God's movement in the world rather than an organization that is just an institution uh, trying to either preserve the past or whatever, you know. So, so that, that movement dimension, I think, is very exciting. Man, that is an incredible it's, – it's funny because that idea seems so simple, and yet when you said it, it was like an aha moment, like, like a light bulb. Like, man, we organize people to actually change systems. That's incredible. Yeah, a lot of people are very turned off by organized religion, and so – and then they become sort of anti-institutional. They want to throw – whether it's government or – or whatever. They want to throw out institutions. People don't realize institutions are precious and important and necessary. Um, the, the problem isn't being organized. The problem is what, what purposes are we organized for? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, that's the question. What, what purposes are we organized for? And, and for you, if we're going to become an organizing church, um, you know, what's, what's, uh, what's heavy on your heart and mind right now that needs to be organized? You know, uh, a, a thousand years ago, this wouldn't have been on uh, at the top of our list. But because human population has grown and because we discovered coal and oil uh, and natural gas, and we had no idea that by sucking those things out of the earth and burning them and putting it in the atmosphere, that we would be throwing the, the future of 
the whole planet's health and, and certainly of human civilization into risk. So um, my goodness sakes, the church is desperately needed to say there is something more important than money. There's something more important than corporate profit. There's something more important than uh, whatever's the easiest and fastest and cheapest way for us to do things. No, there are values like the future generations, like the well-being of the sparrows that God cares for and the wildflowers that God cares for. So to care for the planet, what would it mean for us to organize? I, I think what the scientists are telling us is true. If we're going to not raise the planetary temperature more than two degrees Celsius, which we have actually we're bumping up against it already, um, we're going to have to organize a shift in values and behavior. Well, who's better equipped to do that? The, the world's largest religion is the Christian faith. We got the Pope on board with this thing, you know. Right. Wouldn't it be great if we, although we have to be honest, a lot of the Catholic bishops are opposing the Pope in this <laughs> because they're like politicians. They're owned by corporate interests. And mm. uh, so, you know, we need religious leaders to organize and uh, anyhow, that's one I could, uh, you know, I could talk about all night. I think we've got to organize people in our country about racism. We, yeah. our, our faith communities have to help white people understand what white privilege is about. And, and we have to help, uh, we have to use our congregations that sadly are still quite segregated. Well, maybe we can use them to help get folks of different colors and ethnic uh, backgrounds together and uh, and to learn what it means to have a history like we have in this country and in our world. And now to say, what would it look like if God's kingdom came, if God's will were done in relation to race on earth? So, that, oh my goodness, that's exciting. Um, we could talk about uh, poverty, you know, what are we going to do about poverty, uh, inequality of opportunity in the schools for our children. All of these become things that, that faith communities can, can mobilize people and organize people about. Oh my goodness. It, it, you, it, as soon as you think about it, you think, and this Sunday, there are going to be millions of people who sit through a boring and irrelevant <laughs> hour. And you think, the world is on fire, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so. You know what's so encouraging, too, is that you're talking about standing for things, not standing against things. And I think yes. what we have been really good at as a church is we've gotten known for what we stand against. And I'm ready for that yeah. to, to be done. Yeah. yeah, well said. I think one of the struggles in church right now is is uh, there's an idea uh, that in order for a church to be unified, you have to be uniform in your thinking. And so, you know, I think the preacher gets up there and, and is scared to death on a Sunday morning that as soon as they say something that that's not uniform, uh, that people are going to leave and, and uh, their church is going to die. And so there's a lot of courage or a lot of, uh, oh, you know, there's a lot of risk taking in, in standing up for uh, changing some of these systems. Um, yeah. And, you know, in that sense, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to say that churches aren't doing that. Are, are there some things going on that you know about that, that you could even call people right now to get involved with specifically? Oh, gosh, there are so many uh, there are so many positive things in this regard. Um, uh, but but let's talk about just a couple that that are just just beginning. And where, you know, people listening to uh, a discussion like this could could actually make a huge difference. Um, there's this amazing organization uh, called 
Interfaith Power and Light, another fantastic organization called Blessed Tomorrow. It's part of something called Eco America. That these organizations are helping local congregations to say, okay, what are we going to do to care for the planet? And so a group of people in a congregation uh, sign up and they get educated and they help educate other people. So let, let me tell you about something that I think is going to take off in the next five to 10 years. What would happen if, um, of course, I know in New York, you have so many people who are renters who don't, <laughs> right. uh, you know, who don't own. So this might be less relevant in New York than, you know, a lot of other places. But well, you could get five people who own a property in the congregation to say, you know what, we're going to we're going to go solar. And if five people do it together, they can sort of learn together. They can reduce their costs. They try it and they find out the investment we make gets repaid in five to seven years. And after that, it's all profit, right? Absolutely. They, then they say, well, let's get 10 more people to do it, you know, and let's get 20 more people. And pretty soon, well, I could imagine a congregation then going to all the people in the neighborhood uh, of the members who have no connection to the church, but say, you know, we're from, you know, First Methodist or we're from, you know, such and such Pentecostal church. Um, and we believe God cares about the earth. And so we're helping organize people who want to, uh, you know, who, who want to care, uh, take better care of this beautiful planet. But, you know, our faith communities could be right at the center of that, that kind of a, a transformation in the world. Uh, I'll tell you one, uh, if I can give you one other. Yeah, question. please do. Yeah. Um, so let's say you have a congregation like, uh, like most, it's predominantly one race. Let's say it's, you have a congregation that's predominantly white and you have a congregation that's predominantly African-American, it's predominantly Latino, um, predominantly Asian. Let's say that the pastors introduce four families from their churches and those four couples or families or whatever or individuals, they say, we're going to have dinner in each other's home once a month for the next four months. That's all they have to do. You know, there are a lot of white folks who've never had a meal in an African-American Oh, my home. goodness. There are a lot of African-American folks who've never had a meal in a Korean or Chinese or a Japanese family's home. There are a lot of, you know, Latinos who've never been invited to a white person's home. What just to do that, and then maybe the churches would give them a little instruction on how to tell their stories, and then maybe you know, you know over those four months, maybe they get a little deeper, and maybe by the fourth they say, yeah, "What is it like to be uh, you know Puerto Rican and and living in uh, New Jersey? What is it like to be African American, uh, you know, in our in our town?" Oh my goodness, people would gain so much from that. Well then. You only do that with four families. They go back and start talking about this in their congregation. The next four months, four more families. The next four months, who knows where that could go. I, lo I love that. I absolutely love it. Uh, you know, here, the, the whole kingdom of God, this whole piece and the way we look about the kingdom of God, this is going to change because of story, because of sharing stories with one another, stories of how uh, we're able to, you know, get solar power that, that, uh, that saves uh, you know, money and, and, and the earth. And, oh, here's another story about how I ate with this family. And I finally, for once in my life, heard about some of the things they face that I've never even thought about. And that's how it happens. It happens one step at a time. I love that you're saying that. I'm ready to actually go back and send out emails to my church people. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is where, and this is where you think, 
what uh, what a difference you know think of a thousand churches in america doing that think of 10,000 churches in america doing that oh my goodness it could be so exciting and and then you know those things just multiply uh where, where that can go so that to me is very very wonderful absolutely mm. absolutely and on that note um yeah, we look forward to being a part of this organizing. Uh, we look forward to being a part of, uh, of taking part in uh, some of these conversations. Uh, for somebody out there listening, uh, you talked about some organizations you can get involved in. What, what's a practical next step for them to take after, after hearing this podcast? Well, you know, um, uh, for, first, if people aren't part of a, a congregation, the good news is there are more and more of these kind of congregations springing up that are getting this, and this is their understanding, and this is the direction they're going. So you guys are helping uh, Keyway in this open network that's forming. People could look into that, and that's part of this larger thing called convergence that's uh, of trying to bring people together. And I, I think a huge part of our work in the next several years is just letting, uh, eventually the world, but certainly in America, letting America know that, there's an alternative to churches that are either just boring and, you know, routine and stuck in a rut on the one hand, or churches that are all passionate, but basically uh, just involved as a warrior in the culture war and not, you know, as you said, Jen, pretty negative, mm -hmm. um, that, that there are these positive things happening. That, that to me is, is a great first step is to say, I want to be part of a congregation like that. I want to help our congregation link up with some others like that. And then we just let it go. You know, we, 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 it, it's, it, then it's, it's not about fixing one thing so we can move to a new static location, but it's being on this journey that uh, continues through all of life. Absolutely. And the journey is worthwhile. Yeah. I, I think in, in your, the great migration stuff, you have so many people throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater and saying the church doesn't work. So I'm just done with it all. And, yeah. uh, and there's hope in this. There's a lot of hope as you've talked about. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for, for that fact. Thanks. Well, I'll tell you, if you want to not have hope, see how bad the problems are and then imagine that there are no churches ready to, to get involved. You know, uh, are we are we going to be left to political parties? Is that our only hope? Oh, There's something really depressing. God help us. I mean, <laughs> let's let's not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not even ready to think about that right now. Yeah, let's not. Let's focus on the other. Absolutely. Right. Thanks so much for hanging out with us for uh, for a few minutes today. I really appreciate it. I know you're on sabbatical right now, and and you taking time uh, to talk through this with us is a big deal. So thanks. Complete pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to pick up your tickets for David Bazan Thursday, September 22nd at ForefrontNYC.com slash FCQ. Sound engineering and music provided by The Astrolab. Organize your digital life at theastrolab.com. <laughs>